0: This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now.
1: Hi, this is Mike Ballerman and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 165 brought to you in association with Smart Pension and theunlistedbought.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Tom Butterworth, head of early stage practice at Silicon Valley Bank, to discuss banking for the high growth tech sector. This sector has, of course, featured in roughly every podcast for now over six years. And banking has cropped up now and then too, and you may have heard of it. But this is the first show in which we have put the two together. SVB is perhaps the commercial bank for high growth companies and the biggest banker for PE slash VC firms. In the UK, they have 4,000 clients, over 1,000 of which are pre-series A. At the other end of the spectrum, as we heard in LFP 163, SVB are also the world leaders in venture debt. We'll hear more about SVB specifically later in the show, but first, let's have a look at the topic of what the banking needs are of a sector which has all sorts of interesting relationships with banks one way and another. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for joining me today. Morning, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Now, when we were preparing before, you were looking like a sort of... um, Well, well, let's just, you know, let's spit it out. I've been at home too long. You were looking rather Neanderthal. You were looking like a caveman. All sort of hunky and and hairy and and, and stuff like that. And then uh, then I believe that SVB in London were planning to go back to the office. So you sort of made yourself all... uh, neat and presentable. And then you went to Greece on holiday, a good plan by the sound of it. But now that uh, we're recording this in the same week that the, uh, the unevidenced Cromwellian tyrants in Parliament have decided we're all going to be locked up pretty much, basically, for the, the next six months. You're obviously a high testosterone chap because in a, in a couple of days you've gone back to sort of full beard and and that and that kind of stuff and uh, triple Y chromosomes and and things. So uh, how's the journey been for you uh, in the last month or so? Well, I mean, I,
2: I was definitely rocking the lockdown look of a uh, no haircut and no shave for a period of time. And you're you're right. We were, we were intending on planning a, a trial return to the office for just a small group of people in September, but given you know, recent government guidance, we've postponed that. So, again, I have very little, you know, to, to complain about. I have, a, you know, a little shed at the end of my garden where I'm speaking to you now from, so I have a bit of separation. So my commute is now, a you know, a 10-meter walk from a back door, but um, I don't have my two young kids kind of nipping around my feet, which I know a lot, a lot of other people have had to deal with. You know, while I was away, I, w- I was kind of thinking, like, actually, you know, it's been a long time since I've been in central London. I think I've been in once since march i mean also another interesting thing is that i can't remember the last time i wore trousers i've been in shorts since march as Uh, well
1: in which case i hope you're not going to stand up then see you
2: sort of waist up (laughs) i can show you wearing shorts but uh yes that's been one of the benefits of the, the working situation is just wearing shorts all the time yeah. So, but I was kind of thinking it would be nice to go. You know, get back into town a little bit, and um, you know, pop into the office. You know, if it was possible to do so. But yeah, that's been uh, that's been delayed for for the foreseeable. Obviously, given given the announcement earlier this week.
1: Yes, and talking of not wearing shorts, of course, there's the famous Warren Buffett comment about when the tide goes out. You know, he's not wearing shorts. And also, I, I was sent us a sort of rather. Uh, Interesting video of a Spanish protest today about masks. Um, in Spain, it's apparently uh, I don't know two hundred euros or something fine automatically or something if you're not wearing a mask. So there were plenty of cyclists of uh, of the ladies and gentlemen's varieties cycling through. I think maybe Madrid, wearing just a mask and and nothing else, which seemed to be, talking of not wearing shorts, a rather potentially uncomfortable thing for the uh, the gentleman. So yes, um, not wearing shorts is sort of very much on the mind at the moment. And, and in terms of this sort of uh, the craziness, I think that. Firms have actually worked really well in terms of adapting very rapidly to suddenly everybody from working from home and then within firms. Plenty of people, as you say, have been busy working on plans to come back to the office uh, and all that kind of jazz. Encouraged by the government, uh, I should say. And uh, only to be told a sort of couple of weeks later, oh no, f- forget it. So it's really... It's really tricky planning and as we've touched on before in the podcast in terms of people i speak to companies are doing very well working from home but after a time it gets harder to do new initiatives and harder to do business development these stuff you could do by just walking around the floor in the office instead sort of 10 minutes you've got to set up hundreds of zooms so i think that the second six months will start showing the sort of more strategic challenges for businesses because businesses have been tactically coping uh, very well
2: yeah I, I agree but i also think you, you know what again i'm in a position of privilege like like a lot of my colleagues are but there is a mental health aspect here as well right where you know if if you're not fortunate enough to have a shadow at the end of your garden and you're in a flat share and you know you don't have any outdoor space it's pretty challenging and i think there's a period of time where people could deal with it but but now obviously it's um you know it's so for, for sure there's people that are struggling with this and i think that all companies need to Take you know a good look at how they support those employees from a, from a mental health aspect because it's um you know I'm feeling it and I feel okay so I, I can imagine some some people are really struggling.
1: Yes, that's a very important point, and thank you for raising it. It needs to be thought about by any listeners and their firms. At the moment, mental health is very very bad and the other thing that we've seen is not just mental health actually but is physical health so we have various friends who have got various physical conditions that have cropped up and in the usual way if they manage to get into hospitals which isn't always easy these days they go for test after test after test all of which show nothing you know we have several people Oh, we had this test and this test oh it didn't show anything it didn't show anything and you know my view on that is it's psychosomatic. It's that if you put people under stress, you know, and, and for many people living on their own, it's solitary confinement, which is a pu- the biggest punishment in prisons, that even if you're sort of, uh, you've managed to stay together emotionally and, and, and mentally without despairing too much, which is a struggle for us all at times, you can end up with he- uh, physical health problems. So um, yes, that's, that's an issue. I'm not quite sure how companies can address it, but to the extent they've got something available, so much the better. So, it's very challenging times, and going back to the young folks, my daughter, as I mentioned before, has sort of found her way into the, the tech world. And every day she works in her flat, in her bedroom, on the laptop. So, you get out of bed, you crawl, looking even more Neanderthal like I'm, I'm sure I've seen over this stage than uh, um, you are, Tom, and were, and just hunch over your laptop. And, you know, in her case, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school, it's an important lesson for other people. Hunched over a laptop, she's developed back problems. Because if you sit over a laptop 10 hours a day, if you don't walk anywhere, even a tiny little apartment in, in, in London, shared flat, you don't walk anywhere, then it does your back in. So, again, just as a sort of public broadcast announcement, do look at your posture how you're sitting. I use a computer, Bridget uses a, a laptop, and for quite some time she's had a riser, so the laptop screen is actually at eye level, and she loses a Bluetooth keyboard, so... If anybody's in, in this for the, the long run, then please do think of your posture and all that kind of stuff because you know what it's like with, with bad backs. Once you've got a bad back, it's one thing to acquire it. It's another thing to, to shake it off. So uh, yes, be careful, everybody, and um, firms do what you can to uh, help people. So moving on from this crazy, crazy world of, uh, of 2020, it wasn't always 2020. Hopefully it won't always be 2020, literally and metaphorically speaking. So how did you get, I was about to say here, but let's miss out the 2020. How did you get to December? The 2019 in your career, <laughs> and and what are you looking forward to from January 2021? Let's delete 2020 from the archives. I think like a
2: lot of people with their careers, and I was very fortunate that that this happened. But I, I stumbled into to banking. I would no aspirations to be, you know, a, a banker. It was a way for me to move to London and you know try and probably continue as much of a university lifestyle as, as I possibly could do. But but actually, I always did find finance very interesting from you know a, a reasonably young age. So. I guess maybe it was somewhere, sort of subliminally, it was it was at the back of my mind. I joined a large bank and was working with general businesses, so no specialisation, no tech focus whatsoever. And then around sort of 07, I guess I just started. And It was probably just kind of when the the you know the tech scene was starting to take off in London. I was just bumping into more entrepreneurs. Um, because you know at the time I was quite a young guy for the role, and I was dealing with you know these finance directors who were. Uh, you know much more advanced in their years than me and you know they were coming to me to talk about financing options and things like that and it was always a maybe a slightly uneven relationship and i met these entrepreneurs and it was like age you know just does not matter like it was all just about you know let's move fast like how do we build great relationships how do we move forward they didn't really care how old you are what gender you were or anything like that. It was like, I want to work with the best people. And I said to my manager at at the bank at the time, look, I really actually want to focus on this. I know that's not my job, but I really want to focus on it. And their response was, you know, "I I don't really care as long as, you know, you hit your targets, you can do it whichever way you want. So I began working with these entrepreneurs and then very quickly, it was like someone flicked a switch. I went from being maybe a little bit apathetic about my career in banking to actually like, this is incredible, I get to spend time with these entrepreneurs. Doing incredible things, and that's all I want to do. I just focus 100% on it, and it just happened to coincide with the rise of the sector in London. And then about seven years ago, just over seven years ago, actually, Silicon Valley Bank approached me and said, You know, would you like to come and join us? We hear your name a few times from entrepreneurs. So, yeah, so I joined the bank when it was a relatively small team in an office in Loughbury, and now, we're, you know, over 300 people. So, it's been really exciting journey to work where, where I am today and just feel very fortunate to have through look good judgment whatever it is stumble across this incredible sector where you get to spend time with these incredible people it's you know I feel very 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 lucky
1: yes it's like one of those what is it long distance paragliding or something like that you, you kind of over the long term one kind of floats around in the career, kind of enjoying it, liking the people you're working with and doing work as well and all that kind of stuff. But then every now and then the sort of heat comes and you suddenly whoosh up sort of several thousand feet in the the atmosphere. It happens to to most people and and you really find yourself in some sort of kind of state of career flow going places and it's all very energizing and exciting and and before you know it you're, you're somewhere that you sort of you weren't a long term ago doing something different so we'll wrap up uh, at the end with what kind of things that uh, you, you and Silicon Valley Bank do for uh, your clients but just let's start off with a super big picture for the main course which I said is the is the overlap of banking and the tech sector in terms of what techs need banks for in terms of their business let's forget the sort of you know flogging them fintechy tech products and Cooperating or competing, we're not talking at that angle. We're talking about really that if you're a startup, you and I have an idea tomorrow in the. I was about to say in a pub. It better get out by 10 p.m. Uh, we have an idea in the in the pub. We we leave Sabre for the first time in our lives. We don't immediately need any banking things at the moment because we need to scratch our head a little bit. But just to give us a condensed view of the journey, you and I have started a, a new code tomorrow, and uh, of course we're going to be massively successful. And, and in 10 years' time, we list on the on the stock exchange. What kind of banking? products per se does a new co startup scale up growth co pre-ipo listed company need in general yeah
2: there's the aspiration element here so you know if if your route is that you you just want to build a company a lifestyle type business which is going to do very well and that's great and that could turn into something your needs are going to be pretty simple and they're unlikely to change the same way that from a you know personal banking perspective it's very rare you actually need to speak to a bank you do it all online you may speak to them very occasionally but it's a pretty simplistic relationship i think that the the other and the journey that you described if you know if you want to go on that that journey which is incredibly difficult let's not forget, you know, if you look at the statistics, you're probably, you know, it's probably easier to be a Premier League footballer than it is to be an incredibly successful entrepreneur. You know, it's it is one of the hardest things you could ever do, which is why, you know, both you and I, I, expect, are in in all of these individuals. But if you want to go on that journey, like I think increasingly we're seeing this through through podcasts and people hearing about it uh, I won't mention any of your competitors.
1: I don't think there are any competitors. There's, there's no one quite like me. In the same way there aren't any competitors to uh, the Gavroche or something like that in, in London. There are other restaurants are available.
2: Exactly, Mike.
1: <laughs> quite
2: right. So <laughs> if you want to go on that journey, you know, it's important to set up your business for, for success as early as you possibly can. Now, there's going to be a stage when, you know, you've got out of the pub and you want to, you know, register the company and it's going to take a bit of time to get up and running. And again, your needs at that stage are quite simplistic and you probably need to validate the idea. But as soon as you validate it and actually know that you're on that path, you probably want to get things set up pretty early around the infrastructure and surround yourself with the best possible people using an accountancy example, you know, using, you know, uh, a guy who's doing accountancy in his bedroom in my hometown of Bolton, he might be okay to start off with, but very quickly you're going to need to professionalize and get someone probably better than that individual to be your accountant. The same goes for your lawyers, same goes for your accountant. So from a banking perspective, it depends what what you need and what you want, but anyone who's in the innovation space, you really want a bank that's going to be there with you from the start of that journey to the end. Switching banks is incredibly painful, incredibly time consuming, and you want people that can you know provide support. And, and banking is a commodity, right? Like a current account with any bank doesn't really do anything any different. You might have you know a slightly different online interface, but in general, by like banking, the day to day element is highly commoditized. So then the differentiation is really around the service side. And I know we're probably going to talk about, you know, relationship management. It's around the products that that bank can offer. So are they generic products which are available to every single sector or are they actually specialist and highly focused on the area that you're operating in? And then do you have people that have actually got experience working with your type of business and working with your type of business from where you are today, but also where you want to be in the future? Because if you're with a bank that is going to be able to support you for you know, the next 12 months, Is that where you want to be or do you want to be with a bank that can be there from from, you know, very early stage all the way through to large, private and public? And that's a a question for the entrepreneur and working out, you know, what what is going to be right for them. And then as you get more larger, more complex, there's going to be more products and services and things that you'll need which are going to get more and more specialists as you go along. So if you're looking at, you know, a tech company, you know, and venture debt, if you're Series A, Series B, Series C, you know, a traditional high street bank is not going to be able to offer you that product.
1: Right. Okay. Well, we'll come back onto the products in a minute. So I I like your point that early on in the journey, and our new co were forming tomorrow to help the world appreciate these great entrepreneurs even more, a kind of entrepreneurial fan club. We'll have a magazine so that uh, teenage boys and girls can stick sort of the posters on their bedroom wall with the pictures of of great entrepreneurs and all that kind of jazz. One of the first things we need to do long before we're a footsie is surround ourselves by professional services advisors uh, uh, which in this context we can include for a change banks uh, as you say you need good accountants you need good lawyers i mean i remember when i had my sort of tech fintech in sort of 98 or so long before they existed at some point i was doing deals with the likes of bearings and and flemings and it was little old me and uh, i needed you know proper industry grade commercial ip protection so I had to find a, a very good commercial IP lawyer who was industry standard to help me. So it's not always a question of scale. It's not a question that, you know, oh, once you get to 100 people, once you get to 200 people. No, I've, I found this myself. At, uh, I was one person at the time, had some associates, but I was one person at the time. Um, and I needed the top of the shop stuff. So I like that point. And also I remember actually talking about 1998. <laughs> Going back to how things have changed in the startup world, there wasn't really a startup world in the 1990s, other than hedge funds left and and did stuff, that uh, it was a hell of a job actually opening any bank account. (laughs) You'd just go around on your own saying, I want a business bank account, and they'd sort of literally peer down their noses at you, you know, who on earth would want that kind of thing? So got the first bit, and then maybe it will help if you just talk a little bit about the spectrum of product. So as you say, current account, yes, I've got that. Service, we'll talk more about relationship banking and that, and then kind of top of the shoppy sexy stuff like venture debt. But in terms of how hard can it be, haha, quotes, surely it's easy just to be a bank because you give somebody a current account and then you lend me money or you don't. Isn't it that easy? Isn't your job simple, Tom?
2: Well, I mean, that's the commoditized element, Mike, right? Like a current account is a current account anywhere, and it's kind of what you layer in addition to that. And there's the, you know, if you look at the main reason why, you know, people would choose to work with. You know silicon valley bank the, the bank account probably isn't the main part of that which i know sounds bizarre but i think it's it's the case and it really is that you know we talk a lot about value add and increasing our clients chance of success like and what what does that mean a lot of people say that kind of stuff but, you know for us like because we we're also the biggest banker of vcs we have an amazing network where we bank about 50 percent of all venture back businesses in the us for example so we have a lot of we've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs over a lot of years so if you're an early stage company and, you know, you're looking for some support, some advice on who's worked in your sector before, if you're looking for a NAD, if you're looking for connections to investors, even if you're looking for, there's actually a, um, a bit of a plug, there's a video on our website that we did with a company called Zephyr, where this is a founder who, you know, he came come out of industry, knew very little about VC, didn't know how to navigate the landscape at all. And, you know, came to us and we, we helped him in terms of saying, well, look, you know, let's review your deck. Let's look at you know the types of uh, investors that would be interested in your your sector, and you know we made some introductions for him, and it, it it ended up with him raising his round, and so that is the that's the real reason why people choose to work with Silicon Valley Bank is is not the bank account, it's the additional things they get outside of that, which we don't actually ch- you know there's no fee for that, we're not getting a success fee from anybody, you know the reward for SVB comes a because it's fun and it's a nice thing to do, but also if we help that company grow. Then, as it gets you know to later stage there are more products and services there is you know debt opportunities for us which which is there where we actually generate you know the revenue side from Um, but there's one of our our colleagues who always spoke about you you should give before you get by providing that value add even to early stage companies where you're right a lot of other you know institutions look at companies based on how much revenue have you got how profitable are you you know we will lend to you if you are Two and a half times, EBIT data debt servicing, and that's our model. And we don't go out outside of that. We're looking at these companies on potential. So even if they are pre-revenue, they've raised some money. We still want to be helpful to them and invest time in that company based on the fact that if they're successful, you know the reward comes for us later down the track. Um, but that is our our model, and it, that's why it's, you know, it's a it's it's a pleasure and it, it's fun. And I love going to work because I get to spend time with these entrepreneurs, and we get to you know, do things like provide introductions and provide support to them. And we're not talking about products and services all the time, because realistically, if you're a pre-revenue, early stage company, the product set that you need is very simplistic. You know, you probably want a current account. You might want a deposit account where, you know, it's very hard to get any interest anywhere. Bank of England's talking about negative interest rates. You may probably want some, you know, commercial card program for expenses to extend that working capital period with those, so, yeah, it's a pretty simplistic product set for an early stage company, but but then it's what's laid on top of that, which is actually interesting for them.
1: So for the later stage company then, who is substantial and, as we know, these days, these tech companies, the better ones, bigger ones, are by no means small. I mean, some of them are raised hundreds of millions of, uh, of capital. They're substantial businesses by anybody's reckoning. Are there... A sophisticated range of products you're selling there there or is it simply that you've got debt you let you lend money I mean you're a bank that's what banks do and that the money comes from having a a debt portfolio I mean venture debt to that extent would just be a type of debt where you've got as it were a different sort of credit risk assessment as you as you say as opposed to oh your ebit Dari, so and so and you know ebits and all these things
2: I think it's more specialization, right? And it's not just venture debt. You know, there's a whole range of you know working capital, so receivable lines, etc. So, for example, we have a line of credit for retail, e-com type businesses, where based on you know their 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 various metrics, we can look at you know providing a facility purely for marketing. So you know you can get quite bespoke on the facilities if you're if you're a specialist and you operate. In a, in a vertical I and mean, then you know when you get to much you know bigger 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 companies you know the kind of large corporates then it is a bit more commoditized but that's where again you know the the value comes in the fact that we work with lots of other companies which could be you know part of M&A activity where obviously a U.S. headquartered bank, so we have this amazing bridge to the U.S. where we can help companies expand to the U.S. very very quickly easily and efficiently and also we then have that U.S. network and also because we've been doing this since the early eighties, we have, you know, some amazing data. So if there's a, you know, a company which is, you know, operating in the UK, B2B SaaS for, you know, whatever it is, we would be able to say, we well, you know here's, you know, we bank, we work with these companies in the US, like, would you want to speak to them, share advice, share stories, whatever it is. So it's that experience that you wrap around it, but for sure there are the products, particularly as you get post series A, can get definitely more specialist for a specialist bank like ourselves versus and you know, maybe a generic high street bank, for example.
1: I see that. That's interesting. Well, I think one of the reasons for asking is that. Um back in the old world when one would sort of go to things and meet people at random and just have random chats which is one of the nice things I like serendipity and and, and randomness rather than everything is planned via emails coming in and this sort of kind of linear I like the non-linear stuff I rather miss it I'd met of course especially in the early days when I did more running around London I've met people from SVP and important important people at the time and I've heard a lot about SVP etc etc and I always came away with the sort of vague impression I'm vague on everything so this is not a particular thing about SVP that SVP Have been very successful, and they're very nice and they're very helpful. All of which is wonderful. They're very sort of nice attributes. But I always sort of wondered where SVP, who are presumably not a charity, actually managed to get the money from. But hearing you speak, there, it sounds to me that in in different terms, would it be true to say that you're a bank, you're very focused on a particular sector which you know extremely well. Therefore, you have a commercial advantage in providing a whole range of banking products to this area because you're you're a specialist in it. And to a certain extent, Again, back to specialisms, um, a lot of what you say reminds me of the old-fashioned merchant banks. I mean, strip off the investment management arm, then a lot of what you're talking about is simply what um, merchant banks would have been doing in the, the 80s, which is a little bit of corporate finance advisory, which was never really charged for back in the day, some commercial lending, particular understanding of certain sectors, certain banks focused on, I don't know, trade finance or, or something like that. So we'll come on to the 21st century stuff in a second. But to an extent, and the, the old-fashioned here I use in a very positive sense, not in negative sense to an extent you're an old school bank one that knew its customers very well knew its vertical very well and therefore could service it very well and if you can do that as a business it doesn't matter whether you're a bank or a tech startup you're going to make money
2: yeah maybe our marketing team should speak to you like I mean, yeah, so, yeah really we're well a really
1: old-fashioned bank <laughs> no but
2: i, I think that, i mean that is the um that's kind of uh how we think about it as well that you know it's providing you know genuine relationship management for high growth businesses and yeah, you know of course like we you know where are nasdaq listed we're answerable to shareholders we have to make a profit and generate large amounts of revenue the fortunate thing for us is that we have this you know groundswell of you know incredible companies and if you start working with them from early on the model is that we start working with them from early if they go and become a you know a huge ipo success in the us they're going to need more products and services as they expand they're going to want to move it internationally. They're going to do more foreign exchange. You know, all those benefits we get by proxy of by working with these incredible companies. So, yeah, of course, we need to generate the revenue and everything else. But for us, you know, the, the reason why companies choose to work with us is, is as you described, is the, the relationship element and the understanding because we don't do anything else. You know, if you look at um, a lot of uh, you know, the, the big banks, they're doing everything from investment banking to, you know, you can buy holiday insurance from them. Don't forget, these are incredible businesses. The big banks make an awful lot of money, and you know they're very complex organizations, and they do some in- incredible things for sure. But it's very hard for them to dedicate the resource to specialize in just one vertical because they're kind of, uh, you know, they're an inch deep and a mile wide. They do everything and that's their business model, which is a great business model. Our business model is the flip of that, but we're, uh, you know, an inch wide and a mile deep. And whenever we've gone outside of our model, and we have done it on occasion historically. It hasn't really worked out for us. so you know we know I think you mentioned Warren Buffett earlier, you know he he's got that quote of you know your spots and you should stick around them. That's what we do. We know our spots, we stick around them and we focus 100% on them and we don't we don't deviate from it.
1: Ah, excellent. Well, finally, I, after many years, have some understanding of SBB. Okay, so uh, that's very clear. And I understand both the relationship banking aspect and the focused aspect, and then the commercial aspect in terms of having uh, a competitive advantage in terms of providing products to a sector that you know intimately well and loyal clients you I mentioned in the intro I think that you've got a thousand pre-series a you know you ain't gonna make mega bucks from pre-series a uh, companies but equally and I've seen lawyers try this and most of them failed actually because they're under more commercial pressure to sort of generate revenue per hour kind of stuff which is that unless you've got a big base at the bottom of your pyramid you know you're not going to get the footsies at the top you can't sort of pick winners out of startups uh, not at all easily anyway so is there anything else you you want to say about relationship banking for uh, the innovation age and then uh, maybe a little bit about how you see the the future going without mentioning the covid 19 word yes yeah, so, i mean
2: i think you know relationship manager relationship banking is you know if you spoke to my grandparents they'd think of you know captain mannering the bank manager who knew every single person in the town and he would make the decisions you know as to whether or not to lend you a mortgage you know bob's a good egg all course you can have a mortgage not a problem here's here's your mortgage if you speak to you know the other you know the the kind of younger generation you know they have no concept about at all the idea of speaking to a bank is completely foreign and their interface is their mobile phone and like i said you know most for most people that's fine like you don't need any more than that i can't remember last time i spoke spoke to my bank i think where you do need there's kind of a spectrum of relationship management right and there's the part of it that's got maybe given the the term. Perhaps a bad name where it is, you know, someone who's there and is part of a bank to sell you as many products or services as possible, whether you need them or not. And you know, there's plenty of examples of you know, PPI, et cetera, where, where that's that's what's come to fruition. I think that at the other end of the spectrum, you've got the the banker who has a you know an in-depth knowledge of your sector and you know, if you, private banking, you know, certain private banks have people who are focused on musicians, people who are focused on actors, even people who are focused on lottery winners. Their needs are completely different. So they understand that. And even at you know, some of the the banks where they have a, you know, a TMT practice. So technology media telecoms is is typically the term that's used, you know, to look after a, a FinTech company and a health tech company, they have completely different needs. So I think the more specialist you go, kind of the better it is. For, better it is for the client and that's the route but that, that we've gone. So we've we've gone the, the sub the subsector route. But I also think it's um, you know, that that trusted advisor role. So the relationship manager isn't just there to sell you products and services, but they're not the expert in everything. They're the orchestra conductor for the bank for you. So if you need help with foreign exchange, they will bring in the expert. If you want help with credit they can bring in a credit expert. That's really the role of a relationship manager. And you know, some of these last quite a long time and I've got relationships and with clients who are no, I no longer have any commercial relationship with whatsoever from a decade ago, and I'm still in touch with them on a regular basis. So it is that, it, you know, you do build a genuine connection with these people. So that's what relationship banking is. I think in the future, you will see more of both. So I mean, you'll see more of the interface and digitization. But I also think you will see people start to value that the analog element of a relationship as well, because if you get a more, you know more complex need or there's an issue, Having someone on point to speak to is much better than trying to, you know, speak to a a chatbot.
1: Absolutely. So bifurcation is the way. The middle ground is kind of disappearing. And as you say, you need digitized products but also as any founder of a business once it's sort of medium sized and growing realizes your your challenges are in a sense more abstract you know on day one you want a lawyer you want a bank account you want you know all these basic building blocks you want these little le- lego building blocks but when we're halfway through our 10 year journey to the FTSE uh, after 5 years our needs are more sophisticated and as I say more abstract you know which comes down to uh, uh, of where a good board can help you but you know to the extent that you're talking you sound like a lot like uh, what founders and businesses need anyway, which is kind of whether they're formal or informal, advisory directors, people they can pick up the phone and, and say, hey, Tom, I've got, got a bit of a problem here. I mean, I'm looking at expanding into a room I, I really got to, do you happen to know anybody? He says, oh, yeah, I do know, or I don't, or I might know somebody who does know. and um, And all that jazz becomes more and more invaluable as time goes on. Anyway, before we'd rack up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. Um, Make sure you're looking after your posture at your uh, desks and laptops, especially, and also somehow trying to keep yourself half sane and uh, half fit. And I'd like to thank my brand partners for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out the UK workplace pensions at autoenrollment.co.uk. Theelistedboard.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. So we've mentioned SVB once or twice. Hopefully by now, the average listener uh, with a uh, tech company under their belt will be uh, reaching for their smartphones, their laptops, their PCs, and be trying to contact you guys immediately because you sound like one of these firms where you may or may not be the right person for a given random company in the world, but you're definitely in uh, such a prime position in a major sector that uh, people should check you out and decide whether oh yes these are the ones for us or, or they aren't uh, ones for us it would be sort of slightly remiss not to know about a bank just talking about the UK which we've been focusing on covers 4,000 clients in the in the high growth sector are there any other shout outs you want to give Tom about uh, SVB in the UK or indeed worldwide I mean how many sort of roughly how many offices do you have for example in how many countries
2: I know you have a global audience mike so it'd be remiss of me not to mention the, the kind of footprint that we have so yeah we have us canada uk Ireland, denmark germany israel and china we're going to be expanding for sure um, in terms of the day-to-day banking it's the us and uk the rest of those offices are just lending only businesses we're also not the right bank for every company even in this space so if you know you're building you know, an app in your spare time, and you've got you know some of your savings build up, and you literally just need somewhere to put that money. We're probably not the right bank for you because there's that value add? You know, can we add that value? But once you get to a stage where it is a bit more complex, you have raised a bit of money, then we're absolutely the, I, I believe the right bank to work with you. So yeah, if, if you're you know in the UK or US and you want to talk about banking, please you know go to our website. You can find all the details on there. But we we love to speak to as many entrepreneurs as possible and even ones that where it's not the right time now we're still happy to find out about what their businesses are doing and, and talk about um, how we could be helpful now or in the future
1: great okay that's been very helpful time's gone very fast and just thinking of, again from the, the new code to, to footsie journey perspective when you have an idea on your own or with a mate and you're putting things together you need a few very basic building blocks right away you need accountants and, and banks and lawyers and uh, and all that jazz, but in terms of the many entrepreneurs I've spoken to over the journey, as time goes by, I mean one of the unstated things is that over time as time goes by and you become more successful, you can upgrade the quality of your your staff I've spoken to many people this is well actually the reason we got here is my staff were great, but now actually I've got more money I can you know afford one of the best CMOs in London as opposed to a fantastic Cmo then in the same way. Either you need to start with sort of cheap and cheerful, your your local branch manager in Bolton or, or whatever, wherever you're starting your firm, and then upgrade over time to you know, city lawyers, as I had to in, in a commercial uh, situation, rather than just using a local lawyer who would have been out of his depth. Or, as you say, if you're lucky, then many people start with uh, law firms that you and I would know uh, in London right from the beginning, um, who's serve them through the whole journey. And uh, the same with banking. And as you say, it depends on what kind of Subsector you're in in the business but all the businesses that I've seen that are sort of growing very big for example valuation of a billion and above they end up with very sophisticated needs you know it, I, I sometimes use the word small co myself I, mean, I wish there was a better word than small co or unlisted company as I use on, on my book but there isn't really a, a good phrase SME can be very vague I mean some of those can be uh, listed and some unlisted but These are really very big businesses with very sophisticated needs. So yes, why not check out a bank that's um, got a hell of a lot of experience in your sector and uh, maybe can help you in many intangible ways uh, above and beyond banking products and services. So thank you very much for that, uh, Tom. I wish... I wish SVB uh, every success in the future, and I hope uh, that you and uh, many, many others get back to the office sooner than we're all fearing. At the moment, I know London needs it. I think the stat I saw the other week was that it was only 14, 1,4% occupancy of uh, offices in London or something crazy. And there are many, many businesses in London, many, many people in London making their livelihood from people going back to the office. So uh, I wish we have success in the future. Thanks,
2: Mike. Thanks so much. I mean, yeah, let's uh, when when we can. It would be great to meet up for a, a coffee or or a beer or something for sure.
1: Exactly, and we will we'll definitely eat a biscuit with that to celebrate or a packet of crisps. <laughs> no expense spared. Thank you, Tom. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast
0: We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. Come away from the city, but with the tarmac so dead and the people so sad. Come away from the city, but with the faces so gray. goodbye watch the firelight dance with me 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 watch the firelight dance with me. Watch the firelight dance